submitting to God. Right? So that's the first command in our passage, James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves to God. And this is a call for each individual, yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. This is to position yourselves under the sovereign, uh, position ourselves under the sovereign order and authority of God. And submission is not just a mental acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. Uh, I think it's easy for us to love ideas about God. And so I want to talk just about what it means to submit to Jesus Christ as a Christian. I think it's tempting sometimes to say, I love ideas about God. And, and if I can receive and submit to these ideas about God, then, I, then I'm okay as a Christian. And maybe there's like 10 doctrines that you're like, okay, I, if I can just believe in these things, and you look at your life, you're like, well, I don't commit murder, murder I don't outright steal, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. So Christianity is, is easy for me to, to, to make these, these 10 things, these 10 whatever principles or, 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 or living standards, that, that if I can just meet these 10, I'm better than every other non-Christian sinner out there, and I'm better than some less mature Christians. So Christianity works for me. I love the ideas about God, doctrine and theology. I can accept the ideas about God. I can, I can meet the standards. And whenever I fail to meet these standards, what's well, all about the gospel? It's all about forgiveness, true. right? So, you know, Jesus forgives me so I can receive forgiveness. And you can have all of that in your heart for like 10, 20 years, but the whole time, are we really growing in our love for God? You know, are we truly submitting ourselves to God Himself as a person, being the Lord of our lives? And I think that's why you see in the church just the danger, even for myself, for all of us, people who know a lot about God, submitting to ideas about God, good, sound ideas, and, and able to jump through the hoop of minimal Christianity uh, but, but, but without persecution or without suffering, if our faith is not tested, uh, then it's easy just to skate through. And so, so this is a challenge for us. Are we truly submitting to God himself, Jesus Christ himself, as, as the Lord of our lives? Uh, let, let's move to, to, to the second command we see is repent by resisting the devil. Because the devil will do whatever he can to, to just draw up this caricature of a false Christianity that we can enter into where we think we're actually saved, or we think we're living uh, like good Christians, but then all of a sudden we, we fail and we realize, man, you know, I, I've been tripped up by the devil. I want you to see something pretty insightful here. Is This is a command, it says resist the devil, but it comes with a promise. The way that this, this phrase comes out, this entire sentence, resist the devil and he will flee from you, is it, not just like kind of like, oh, he might flee from you. Notice that he will flee from you. This comes with a promise, right? But, but oftentimes, we don't think that we can resist the devil. Uh, in fact, we don't want to blame everything on the devil. And I, I would support that, that we don't want to, every time we fall into sin, oh, it's the devil's fault. And I don't think that's what James is saying, but he is using a military word. He's using the word resist. This is combat. This is, a, this is the language of combat and warfare. And in this context, the warfare is spiritual. It's spiritual warfare. That there's a greater demonic force at work that seeks to divide and destroy the church, beginning with individuals, by challenging our humility, causing us to, to, to swallow up in our pride, but also dividing us, right? And, and just, again, causing us not to submit to God as a person. And so that's what these false teachers were doing. They weren't repentant. They didn't want to turn to God. Uh, and so they proved themselves. If they didn't repent, they would prove themselves agents of Satan, actually being used by Satan to divide the body of Christ. And so this is a serious call to battle. You know, we sing that song, Oh, church, arise and put your spiritual armor on, right? Put your armor on. 
Uh, and I, I don't know the exact words verbatim as I was typing this, but heed the, the call of Christ our captain. Right? So, so we are to turn to Christ, submit to him, and resist the devil, and he will flee from us. This is a crazy promise. Right? Now, when it says to resist the devil, what does that look like? This is not saying put yourself in a position where you're looking to pick a fight with the devil. Don't try to fight the devil. He will kill you. Right? I, I mean, the devil is so sneaky. Uh, and I say this a lot of times. You guys have heard me say this or you've heard me preach. If the devil came in with a red jumpsuit, we'd laugh at him. Right? Because that's not the devil. With horns, we'd be like, ha, ha, ha. You know, we just laugh at him. Right? If, if the devil came in look, like in full terror, we would, everyone would, would believe in Jesus. Right? If the devil came and just like just full on terror, horrifying people, people would be running to the church. Because people know about spirituality and religion. They'd be running for some type of religion or church. But instead the devil puts on, you know, puts on the mask of, of, of someone who's inviting or false religion, false doctrine, false teaching. And the devil wants to entice us and he wants to trap us in because that's who he is. He is a liar. He is the best. He is cunning. And, and so, so James is not saying, go put yourself in a position of temptation, because you will fall. You know, he's not saying, go and try to fight the devil. He's not saying, engage in dark arts, though I love Harry Potter. That's not what he's talking about, right? <clears throat> Instead, what he's saying is that if you've truly submitted yourself to God, then we're under the lordship and protection of Christ. And when we find ourselves tempted, we need to battle, and we need to trust that if we resist the devil, that he will actually free from, flee from us, not because we are powerful or awesome. You know, the devil doesn't flee from us because he's scared of us. The devil flees from us because we are under the protection and the lordship of Christ. That's how the two commands work in order, right? If you've submitted to God, you're under the, the realm of God's kingdom. You are under the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And if you really remain and surrender yourselves to, to, the, to the Lordship of Christ, then He will flee from you. And this is simple as trying your best to submit to Scripture. You know, Scripture is powerful. Scripture is the Word of God. And, and, and if you are in temptation and you just simply open your Bible, and it's not a magical formula, but, but then you're like, yeah, I'm going to try to remember what the Word of God says. I'm going to try to meditate on this. The, the devil will flee from you because he's, he's not afraid of you, but he's afraid of the Word of God. He is terrified by the Word of God because the Word of God will destroy him. Right? He understands that he's defeated. He understands that he cannot battle against Jesus Christ. But if you successfully flee from temptation and the devil, but then later on some time passes and you put yourself willingly back into a position of temptation and the devil's like, man, I can get this guy. I can get this guy. He's going to come, come on to you even harder, you know, even stronger. Uh, this is a common illustration, but, but one that I found in, in reading Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, and, and he illustrates how, uh, in, in his day, you know, very early on, back, 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 back in the day, if a prisoner escapes and gets caught again, the jailer is going to use heavier chains to prevent him from escaping again. Now, this is common sense. If you have, if you're trying to, if you're trying to bind Wolverine, you know, and he like destroys your 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 jail box, whatever, you're gonna put him in some maximum, uh, maximum, uh, you know, capacity prison where where he can't escape, right? In the same way, if you flee from Satan once then return to the same temptation and sin, and this time you fall, Satan is going to bind you with heavier chains. And so we need to watch out. And, and where I'm getting with this is pride. 
right? Is pride. Because sometimes when we look at Christianity as just jumping through the hoops, you know, and, and if, if maybe you've struggled with anger in the past, like, like I have in the past, and so you're able to, like, at least not outwardly blow up, but you don't know that inwardly you're still dealing with bitterness and things like that, then outwardly you're like, okay, I'm good, I'm pretty good, you know, I'm pretty good, I don't get mad anymore, right? But you're not really dealing with your heart, and then all of a sudden one day, this bitterness just explodes, and you're like, where did that come from? Or, or whether it's lust or something like that, right? So whenever we think that we have grown in Christ, it's good to recognize the fruit of growth. But sometimes when we grow, we're like, hey, I'm a pretty good Christian. You know, I know a lot of doctrine. I've actually uh, achieved, uh, you know, mastery over some of my sins. I mean, none of us would say that, right? But then, but then that's when the devil gets us. Say, oh, you know, when that person was broken and weak, I had no hold on him because he was he was clinging onto the cross like crazy. But now that that person's a leader, now that that person's a pastor, now that that person's a I don't know church leader, I think they think they're pretty good as a Christian. Now's now's the time to attack, right? Now's the time to trap that person, and pride will destroy us, right? Uh, but when we fall, because we're all going to fall. Thomas Watson, once again, uh, I love him. You know, Thomas Watson. Uh, it's, 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 he, he says, it's not falling into water that drowns by, uh, by but, but it's not falling into water that drowns a person, but it's by laying in it. And I'm Baptist, I'm like, I love water, you know, what's wrong with that? But he says, it's not falling into water that, that drowns a person, but it's by lying in it. And it's not falling into temptation or sin that damns you, but laying in sin without repentance. That's Thomas Watson's illustration. So we must continually resist the devil. And even when you feel like, man, dude, I, I've kind of fallen into sin, resist him, flee. You know, he will flee from you. And how do you resist him? The third command is you draw near to God. Repent, right? Repent means to turn. So you turn to God by submitting to him. You turn to God by resisting the devil. You, you repent, you turn to God by drawing near to him. If you turn directionally towards God, draw near to him. And again, the idea is not, God, I've repented. Now I'm going to go off on my own and live for you because we'll fail. Right? It's turn to God and stay with Him. Turn to God and stay under the submission of His protection and His power. So draw near to God, and it says He will draw near to you. Right? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And this command simply calls us to cultivate our relationship with God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it exhorts us, Draw near to the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. One of Satan's greatest weapons is shame. You know how like when, when we fail or when we fall into sin, sometimes we're like, you know, I'm not good enough for God. And, and so even if you're a non-Christian tonight and you're trying to learn more about God and you're like, I don't know if I'm good enough for God. You know, I, I think the truth is we have to come to grips with the understanding that none of us will ever be good enough for, the, for God who is perfect and holy. His standard is perfection. But that's why he offers us his perfect son as the standard and our our response is to respond to Jesus Christ and to trust Him. But, but, but we need to understand Hebrews 4.16 that is telling us that, that no matter how much we've fallen into sin, drawing near to God is the only way to healing. That actually Hebrews 4.16 is very clear. It says, if you draw near to God and you ask for His forgiveness, you draw near, him, near to Him to receive mercy and to find grace, right? not to receive judgment. But actually, judgment is to, to be separated from God. The worst punishment that God could give any sinner is not to interrupt that person and confront them. Discipline is what a loving parent does to their child, right? 
the worst punishment that God could give to a person is to allow a person to go on sinning and never rebuke them, never confront them. Like never, like that person goes on happy in life, thinking that they're fine, right? That's like the worst punishment because one day they're going to realize, man, I, I'm separated eternally from God. I am in eternal judgment. And so actually, when we look at dealing with God in the moment of shame and sin, we need to draw near to God. Don't run away from Him. Running away from Him is what Satan wants because that's actually the punishment. It's actually to be sent away from God. James is not is not really talking about drawing near to God in corporate worship. I mean, obviously we want to do that. But he's talking about repentance and, and dealing with division, like we said, disunity, hypocrisy. So a lot of scholars believe that James is thinking about Hosea chapter 12, verse 6. Let me read that to you. Hosea chapter 12, verse 6 says, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. And in Hosea's context, Israel played the harlot, right? Israel was constantly spiritually adulterous uh, towards God. They, they constantly cheated on God, worshiping other idols, yoking themselves to other idols and to idolatry. And, and Hosea is that example, and God speaks to his prophet, just Hosea and Gomer, just that, that picture of, of God's love for his people, of God, God saying, saying, you know, return, hold fast, so return, repent. And hold fast in love and justice. Wait for your God. And He will forgive you. He will restore you. Thomas Watson, once again. And I keep referring to him because there's, there's a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And so as soon as I, I studied this passage, I'm like, oh, it's about repentance. I'm grabbing this little book. I don't know if any of you guys read those little Puritan paperbacks. Puritan paperbacks. You know, I think when I was in seminary, it, w it was so tempting to, to just become spiritually dry just learning information and theology. And, and, and so, you know, the, the pastors that I look up to were always quoting these Puritans. And so there's these little tiny paperbacks. They're like 10 bucks each, right? You can get them at the thrift store even uh, somewhere because people don't care for them. And I would pick, pick them up and it'd be like devotional bomb to my soul. Well, anyway, so, uh, so that was my favorite one during seminary. It's called Doctrine of Repentance. And, and so when I was preparing this, I pulled it out and I was, I was writing up some of these some of these illustrations, right? And, and Thomas Watson, he talks about drawing near to God in repentance, right? Doctrine of repentance. And he says, if prayer does not if prayer does not cause a man to leave sin, sin will make him leave prayer. I just want you to think about that. I mean, that, these are kind of the Puritan nuggets that you kind of think of. You're like, hey, yeah, if prayer doesn't cause me to leave sin, then sin will make me leave prayer. I mean, that's just genius because when you pray, you're actually drawing near to God. And, and, and you're going to think less about your sin. You're going to be thinking, even if you're confessing sin, you, you ought to be saying, God, I'm bringing it to you for forgiveness. And, I'm, I, and, and Lord, help me. Search my heart. Help me to repent for real, God. You know, I'm coming before you rather than just dwelling in your sin or, or rather than just you know, going and battling sin or even falling into sin. You're, you're going to God and saying, God, this is sin. Help me, right? That's already... A little victory in Christ and through the Spirit and sin. But if you don't pray, then you will pray. Then you will continue to sin, and it will make you leave prayer. And the more you sin, the more you're going to feel guilty going to God, and and the more guilt and shame that's going to build up, and that separation is going to build, and, and you won't pray anymore. So once again, re repentance is not thank you God for forgiving me. Now I'm going to go change on my own. 
but repentance is turning to God and staying with Him. And then when you are near Him, then true repentance happens. And so the fourth command is repent externally and internally. Well, this is not the fourth command, but again, I'm, I'm combining the commands, right? So this is, this is the, the fourth and, and the fifth command together. Okay, but point number four, repent externally and internally. Uh, we know that sanctification happens from the inside out, but James, for some reason, begins with, in verse 8, cleanse your hands. He starts with the action, then he goes to purify your hearts, right? He goes out external, internal. So I put it in that biblical order, or the order of the biblical author. But notice verse 8, cleanse your hands. This speaks about your actions. And actions begin with our hearts, right? But to the Jewish Christians, cleanse your hands would bring to their minds all of the all of their understanding of the Old Testament purity rituals. And there are different rituals you would have to do, like washing of your hands to symbolize uh, an act of purity. And then it says, cleanse your hand, you sinners. That kind of sounds dogmatic, right? Cleanse your hands. Go wash your hands, you sinners. Uh, but, but it speaks to our being, is that if you cleanse your hands, you realize that your hands are dirty. Right? You realize that you're a sinner. So, it, so it's like drawing you to God, and, and allow him to, to cleanse you, right? Knowing and recognizing that you're a sinner. But I think there's a reason why it says sinners. Because sin is not, is not something that you can, you know, whether you sin or whether you repent, it, it's not something that you can turn on and off like a light switch. You can, but really, sin is part of who we are. That's why the Bible refers to us as sinners. We are sinners, and that's why we struggle with sin. Right? And we are being sanctified as sinners. We are, we are sinners, yet saints, being sanctified if you have Christ. But sinners just speaks to the, the true problem, which is our inner being. And then the second aspect, right, the second command, verse 8, it says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so you can see kind of the rebuke, right, the call to repentance. Why double-minded? So I looked at the Greek in the original language, this double-minded, it literally can be translated as, as double-souled, soul. I can't even talk tonight. Two souls, two souls, okay? S-O-U-L-S, S-O-U-L-S, two souls, like two separate individuals, meaning you're hypocrites, right, if you're causing division. And that's what the false teachers were doing. They were like hypocrites. They were teaching one thing, but they had their own purpose. They had their own motivation. They had selfish gain in mind or selfish gain was motivating their teaching and they were causing all kinds of strife and so that's the rebuke for them but also the people who would follow them this double-mindedness and what james has in mind is psalm 24 verse 3 to 4 psalm 24 verses 3 to 4 psalm 24 verses 3 to 4 and the psalmist says who shall ascend the hill of the lord and who shall stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false? And who does not swear deceitfully? And when I was in college, I think I was in college, there was that song, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. And, you know, nowadays there's hand sanitizer. So it's like, I, I could imagine back in the day, I'd probably be like, give us clean hands. <laughs> you know, give us pure hearts, right? But um, that's the idea from Psalm 24. Give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart. You know, cleanse us completely. Cleanse us Internally, internally and externally, externally and internally. So repentance, the point here is that repentance must be a complete process. Co repentance can't just be, hey, God, help me to change my actions. 
Helping to stop doing wrong things or sinful things because it begins with us recognizing that I'm a sinner. That's why I do sinful things. And so, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse my heart. Um, the heart is not just emotions, but the Jewish understanding of the heart is the center of your being. And, and so, so you know how your mind and your heart must be connected. So the pure heart is also the pure thoughts, right? The pure thought life, the pure heart, it's connected. And so this leads us to point number five, right? Point number five, which is repent with deep reflection. Now, in verse nine, you see four commands. And these can be uh, grouped together. And, and they require some, uh, some explanation because some of it, it's like, it's like telling you to do something bad, but that's not really what... James is intended. So let me explain it, right? But, but it says, lament, mourn, weep, and turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom, right? Those are the four commands that fall under the category of repentance. Lament, mourn, weep. Um, and so, so first let's start with lament. Lament speaks of a godly remorse and a godly sorrow. Now, if you've joined us on Sundays, you know, I talked about Judas and Peter right, a couple weeks ago. Now, Judas and Peter both sinned. They both betrayed Christ. But one of them, they were both ashamed too, and they were both guilty. But one of them dwelled in his sorrow and ended up, you know, taking his own life because he could not deal with the guilt. Deal with the guilt, rather than going to Christ and recognizing that Jesus wants to bear our shame and guilt, and Jesus wants to bear our shame, our, our shame and our sin and pay for our sin. You know, he took it upon himself and he couldn't bear it, so he allowed his own self-centeredness and and his own selfish shame to destroy himself. And that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants people to, to, to self-destruct emotionally from within. right? But then you have Peter who lamented, he mourned, he wept. You know, Luke tells us that he wept bitterly right, when he realized that he betrayed Christ. Uh, but then he returned to Christ. He repented. right? But he had his time of deep reflection. And I believe the lament, mourn, weep, it just talks about deep reflection. That, that you take sin seriously, seriously enough that you lament over it. You're sad over your sin, but you don't stay there, right? Mourn. It speaks of true contrition towards sin. This is a deep grief because you realize that sin not only displeases God, but it destroys the relationships in your life. And that really hits the context of James, where sin is not only de destroying the individual, but destroying the relationships in the church and in the family. And then weep, for Jews, weeping tears were an outward manifestation of inward sadness over one's sin. It was an outward expression of a real inward pain. And, and so this is exactly what Peter went through. He lamented, he mourned, he wept. But this is from Joel chapter 2. Um, and, and again, this is not um, Joel, Joel the, the Osteen Joel, but Joel, Joel the biblical prophet, right? Joel 2, 12 to 13. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. You notice that weeping and mourning are, are put together. But, but notice the return to me, right? So you see the context of repentance in Joel. You see fasting, weeping, mourning. And it says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Right, so you see... James must have been thinking about this type of Old Testament teaching, which for a Jewish Christian, they would understand as, as Jesus is the one who fulfills this for us. He is the one that brings about our repentance. He's the one that we turn to. He is the Lord that we go to. And then you go back to James, verse 9, and this is the, this is the tricky 
uh, statement. It says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. I always thought it was the other way around, right? Let your mourning be turned into joy. Right? So, so what's going on here? He's saying, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. This speaks of the seriousness of sin. So I, I did a little studying. And the context here is the false teachers take joy in their sin. Right? And, and so there's almost this idea of people laughing at their sin. People taking joy in their sin. Enjoying sin. And loving their sin. Almost like a flippant laughter. And, and so this is rebuke. This is rebuke like an Old Testament prophet would rebuke people say, hey, don't be laughing. You can't take sin seriously because sin has real consequences. You know, turn that self-centered false joy into dejection because you've got to understand the weight of sin and the judgment that's going to come over sin. And so true Christian joy can never be ours if we ignore or tolerate sin. It only comes when we have squarely faced the reality of our sin when we bring it before the Lord in repentance and humility and experience the cleansing work of the Spirit, right? And so that's what, that's what James is talking about in, in chapter 4 when he says, Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection, right? It's to take sin seriously. Don't, don't make it into a laughing matter. It's serious. Once again, I want to quote Thomas Watson. Yeah, I do commend the book to you, okay? Uh, and he says, a regenerate person abhors, which means he hates sin, not only for the curse, but the contagion. Not only for its sting, but for its poison. That's what's pretty cool. Like, oh, I hate the fact that that scorpion stung me. No, no, no. It's, it's not the sting. It's the poison. Right? It's the poison that's going to harm you. And he continues, he hates sin not for hell, but as hell. Okay. That's pretty colloquial. Right? So, so you know, he hates sin as hell. Right? Not for hell, but as hell. And that's Thomas Watson back in the day. Uh, but none of this happens if we rely on ourselves, right? So all of this, submitting to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, external and internal repentance, and repent with, repenting with deep reflection doesn't happen if we uh, bear our, try to bear our own burdens and, and battle ourselves, right? So uh, the final point, point number six, is repent with humility, right? And so this is the tenth and final command we see repent with humility but point number six and this is from matthew 23 12 right this is what james had in mind matthew 23 12 says jesus taught us that all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted right that's the idea uh, from from matthew 23 and, and you've seen this this verse quoted but in james 4 10 james says humble yourselves before the lord and he will exalt you so to humble ourselves before the lord this includes recognizing that we're coming before God's standards and, and not man's standards. So when you come before the Lord, we cannot come before the Lord and saying, saying like I said before, like, hey, we're pretty good. Or maybe I've sinned, but that person's worse. You know, don't, we, we can't compare ourselves to, to weaker Christians with pride. And, you know, or we can't compare ourselves to the non-Christians and say, well, you know, God, I'm not evil like those terrorists over there. I'm not a murderer. Right? And, you know, when you come before the Lord, the, the language is very powerful. It's saying, humble yourselves before the Lord. So if you come before the Lord, you're, it's the Lord's standard. You're, you're going to be like Isaiah, where you're, you're saying, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't deserve to come before you at all. 
you're completely holy, and I'm devastated. I deserve to die, right? So when we compare ourselves to God's standards, it naturally humbles us. And so the, this is point six, repent with humility. But I want, I want to end by this highlighting the most encouraging note, the end of verse 10. He will exalt you. You don't have to exalt yourself. He will exalt you. You see, the obedience, our obedience is seen in our submission and lowering ourselves before God, putting ourselves under the Lordship of Christ and surrendering to His Word, then God is going to lift us up in His timing. You know, sometimes when we repent or when we come before God, we're like, God, but what about the other person who hurt me? Or God, this is not fair. Or, or how am I going to bear this? Or nobody understands how hard it is for me, right? But when you come before the Lord, He's going to lift you up in the right time. He might say, hey, you need to go through this for a season, but I have a greater purpose for you. He will defend you. He will lift you up for with His purposes. So the big idea, the big idea of tonight's message of James 4, verses 7 to 10, is humility produces the imperatives of genuine repentance in Christ. That if we truly want to have a life that's, that's turning to Christ and remains with Christ, it begins with humility by surrendering ourselves, submitting ourselves to God. Humility produces the imperatives of genuine repentance in Christ.